Some years ago in France, there lived a poor little blind girl, and she had obtained a gospel of Mark in Braille. It was all she had to read, and she loved it. Reading the gospel was her favorite thing to do, and she would read it with the tips of her fingers over and over and over again until her fingers became so callous and her sense of touch so diminished that she could no longer distinguish the characters. In a desperate attempt to resensitize her fingers, she cut off the ends of them, which only made them less and less sensitive. Her failure to fix the situation left her depressed, and the thought that she'd have to give up her beloved book of Mark caused her to weep and weep. One day, while weeping, she brought the gospel of Mark up to her lips, saying these words, Farewell, farewell, sweet word of my Savior. And yet to her surprise, as she brought this book up to her lips, she realized that her lips were far more delicate than her fingers, discerning the form of the letters. All day and all night, she perused with her lips the book of Mark, and she was overjoyed with her new acquisition. Her joy was restored, and she read, and she read, and she read, as she devoured this magnificent masterpiece of the words and life of Jesus Christ. Now friends, I don't know how precious the gospel of Mark is to you, but I hope it's precious. I hope you delight in God's word. I hope you're reading it and meditating upon it. I pray that the Bible doesn't sit on your shelf all week gathering dust, but that you're reading it. And I hope that when you read it, the words are like sweet nectar to your soul. My prayer for you this week was that God's word would become more and more precious to you. That as you approach reading in your devotional times or in your small groups or as you come to our church gatherings on Friday, that it wouldn't merely be data transfer, that it would be information going to your head merely, but I pray that it would change your life, that God's word would drastically renovate your soul and change your life. And I pray that that would be the case for each of us, even this morning as we gather together around God's word. And so without further ado, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn to this most magnificent, most delightful book, the Gospel of Mark. And we'll be continuing our study in verses uh, 30 through 50 of chapter 9. Mark is the second book of the New Testament, and we're continuing on this picture of the life and times of Jesus. And we'll see that it's a different kind of passage this morning. Typically, we're used to big crowds gathering around Jesus, right? You see these big crowds gathering around him, these epic scenes as the crowds try to catch a glimpse of this miracle worker. But in our passage this morning, he gets his 12 men alone. He gets the 12 men by themselves, and he doesn't want anyone to know where they are. In essence, he's got them for a little heart-to-heart talk. It's a little training time with these men. Because see, Jesus is about to head off to the cross. His face is facing towards Jerusalem, and he's in his final days of his life. He's going to go suffer, he's going to die on the cross, and he's going to pass the entire mantle of leadership to these men. And so he gets them together for some important instruction for them. It's crucial for them in their day, and it's crucial for us uh, today at Redeemer. And in this passage, we'll see three lessons for us. 
three lessons in Jesus' school of discipleship. Three things. We'll take one at a time uh, and we'll read the parts of the passages applicable to that point. So we'll start with verses 30 through 37. We see that the first lesson is that the way up in God's kingdom is to go down. First lesson in God's kingdom is that the way up in God's kingdom is to go down. This is counterintuitive to us. It's backwards to us, but it's the way of the kingdom. Look at verses 30 through 37. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did, they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand up among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is a shocking scene, isn't it? Again, Jesus is telling the disciples, hey guys, I'm going to die. I mean, he couldn't be any clearer here. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to suffer at the hands of men, and he's going to die on the cross. He's told us that now over and over again, and the message should be loud and clear for these disciples. They should have gotten it, but instead they're following the suffering Messiah. They're walking behind him, the one who will die, and they're arguing about, Who's going to be the greatest? Who is the greatest in God's kingdom between the 12 of us? Now remember in Jesus' day, there were rankings everywhere. You were great if you knew the most Torah or had a high ministry position or you followed the law well. So the disciples, they were discussing this among themselves. Who, which one of us is the greatest? You can imagine how ridiculous some of this conversation might have sounded. Perhaps Peter, Peter likes to step up First, right, he probably stepped up and said, hey, guys, guys, I'm the greatest. Come on. It's obvious. Do you remember the time a while ago when I walked on water? None of you guys have done that. I've walked on water. I'm the greatest. You can imagine the other disciples snickering and elbowing him and saying, Peter, that was for like a second and then you began to drown. Peter, you're always messing up. You're always sticking your foot in your mouth. There's no way that you're the greatest. Come on. Then maybe James and John get into the game here and they say, hey, how about us? Right? We're the sons of thunder. We like to blow people up. We're the greatest. And then good old Thaddeus comes in to the game. Maybe he said, hey, guys, I, I know my name means mama's boy. I know that. I know it's ridiculous. I know it means mama's boy, but I'm the best. My mama always tells me so. I'm the greatest. Well... Whatever it is they're saying, it appears that it was quite ridiculous that they're arguing amongst themselves, who is the greatest? And so after this discussion, Jesus, as they get to their place, says, says, hey guys, 
It sounded like you were having a bit of a heated discussion back there. What were you guys talking about when we were walking? And they pause in silence and fear because Jesus had founded the mouth. And so Jesus interrupts the silence and says, you guys just don't get it. You know, I've turned the world system completely upside down. If you want to be first, you go to the back of the line. If you want to be high, you've got to go low. He tells them how low in verse 37, gives them an illustration. He says, welcome these children in my name. Do you know why Jesus uses children here as an illustration? It's not because children are the example of humility. No, it's because you model humility when you treat children well. In the Greco-Roman world, children were the low rung in society. They required discipline and instruction. They were seen as insignificant. They were seen as a nuisance and a liability. They were just a drain on the resources until they could one day contribute. I mean, think about it even today. I mean, when was the last time you got a better job because of a kid? I mean, when did they ever network for you? I mean, when did a kid come up to you after being with this playmate in the nursery, and the little kid come up and tell you, hey, I got a friend in the nursery who knows a guy who's hiring right now in his marketing company. Here's his number. Why don't you go for it? Now, that would be ridiculous. Kids have never done that for us. Never, ever, and they never will. It's ridiculous. No Jesus isn't saying love children because they're lovable or love children because they'll help you out. No, he's saying love those who are like children because it will require sacrifice and it will require service. You've got to go low if you're going to get high. And Jesus knows the sinful tendency of each of us to enter into relationships for selfish gain. We make our whole world to revolve around us, our kingdom. How can people serve me? How can people serve my kingdom? How can my relationships help me out, my own very own personal kingdom of one? And Jesus is saying, when one serves the helpless, when you serve the helpless, you are serving Jesus. I mean, do you see how serving those who are perceived lower than you adorns the gospel and exalts Christ? Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, find people who can't help you and go help them. Those people who stand nothing to gain for you, no career advancement. Now, that's humility, that's service, that's Christ, isn't it? I mean, God in the flesh who gave up the glory of heaven to help us, sinners who deserve nothing. I mean, Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, we had done nothing attractive to lure him to us. We had done nothing that would give him gain to come and help us. We had done nothing to earn his love or make us attractive. No, see what God had done in sending Christ to save us helpless sinners God had modeled this service. He had modeled this humility. He went low so that you and I could go up. And yet it's our tendency to do just the opposite. Maybe you notice this about yourself, that you try often to meet important people. You try to jockey around and meet the important boss or the famous person or even leader at church or your organization or at work. We try to talk to those who can help us. 
No, I want to urge you today to be the sort of person who can be friends with anyone. To be the sort of person who is friends with anyone. If you're in school, show the world that belonging to Jesus frees you from concern about status. That as a Christian, you have all the belonging that you need in Jesus. I encourage you over the summer, if you're here for part of the summer and you're in school, reach out to those kids that will be stunned and shocked if you called them and wanted to spend time with them. Reach out to those at work who would be stunned that you're reaching out to them. Humble yourself before the Lord and before them. Help us out at the church and serve with Redeemer kids. Love our precious kids. Now that is selfless service because I, for one, never have little kids come up to me thanking me for discipling them. I don't know if that's happened to you. They come up to you and just thank you for discipling them and preaching the gospel to them. They don't do that. They're not really that grateful to you. But let me assure you that God is honored when you pour into the children of this church. And as a parent, and speaking for fellow parents, we are honored and we are thankful to you for your investment into our children on Friday mornings. We never see it. It's back there in those other rooms. But God is honored when we exhibit sacrificial and selfless service to those who can't thank us and those who can't honor us. It's because the currency of this king's kingdom is to be low. That you've got to be low if you want to be high. Well, that takes us to the second lesson here in Jesus' school of discipleship. And it connects with the first. The second lesson is that we cheer for other ministries proclaiming the gospel. We cheer for other ministries proclaiming the gospel. Look at verses 38 through 41 with me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. When you see what's going on in this passage, John comes up to Jesus. It's shocking it's not Peter this time, but it's John. And he comes up to Jesus and he complains to him. And it's a complaint that's just dripping with irony. He says, hey, Jesus, we just saw this other guy. We don't know who he is, but he's casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop it. told him to stop it because he wasn't following us, because he wasn't part of our team. It's quite amazing, right? Because in this passage, here's this guy who just cast out a demon. Remember a couple of weeks ago? The disciples tried the same thing, and they failed They couldn't do it. And here's a guy who's actually done it. He's delivered someone from the grip of Satan through the powerful name of Jesus. And the disciples, they go tell on him to Jesus. You see how ridiculous that is? I mean, if you have kids, this is probably typical in your household. You know, we call it a tattletale in our household. Sort of one kid goes up to one of the parents and says, My brother just hit me. My sister just stole my toys. Daddy, help me. Right, And your kid expects you to go up and do justice, to inflict punishment, to get the toy back and give it to the offended party. That's kind of what John is doing here. John is acting like a four-year-old. He's tattletelling on this guy and he says, Jesus, here's this guy. 
He's casting out demons in your name. Stop him. Punish him. Get him to quit. Now, why is John doing that? Well, quite simply, it looks like he wants a monopoly on exorcisms. (laughs) That he wants to erect boundaries on the ministry of Jesus. As if they're the only ones who could do this. That it has to go in and through them. That they were the ones authorized. And they forget that Jesus is the one with supreme authority. Surely they're expecting Jesus to go, Wow, John, disciples, this is brilliant. Thanks for bringing this to my attention. I had no idea this was going on. I mean, you're right, he's not one of us. Who does he think he is anyway? I'm going to stop him right now. You can imagine in the background the disciples giving each other high fives. Good thing we caught that guy. Good thing we told on him to Jesus. He's going to stop him. He's going to get him to stop casting out demons in Jesus' name. Good thing we're here to help, up, help out Jesus. Well, that's not what happens, is it? It's not what Jesus says. He catches them by surprise and he rebukes them. He says, John, buddy, you're missing it. Did you hear what you just said? Verse 39, this guy is casting out demons in my name. Verse 40, he's working for my cause, my name. So he's not a member of the 12. I get that. Jesus says, it doesn't matter. Ministry is happening in my name, and so I rejoice. They wanted a corner on the exorcism market, which is ridiculous. They are terrible at exorcisms. They are failing at exorcisms. And here's this guy who was successful. Here's a guy who was successful at ministry in Jesus' name. Jesus is telling them and he's telling us this morning that good can come from outside our circles. That good can come from outside our ministry. Isn't that a good word for us this morning? No one has exclusive rights to Jesus and his ministry. No, no, Jesus is the head of the church. That's why we, as the global church, we are called the body of Christ. Because he is the head. And I wonder how easy it is for us, for this to happen to us as a church. Perhaps we get a little territorial when the new church gets started down the street from us. Or a new ministry launches that seems to be doing similar things that we're doing. Or maybe it's even another ministry in our particular church that seems threatening to us. And we think we own a special copyright for that kind of ministry. Or maybe we just start thinking that we're the best. That what we're doing is specially used by God. Now, this is easy for us to do here at Redeemer. I mean, we just started 18 months ago and God has done some great things. Many people have come to faith. Many people have grown their knowledge of the gospel. And we could easily look at ourselves and say, Wow, look at this great church that we have built. Look at this great church that we have started. Look at what we've done. Oh, I pray to God that we would never do that. That we would never talk like that. No, that we would always recognize that it is Jesus who builds his church. That the church is built on the foundation of Jesus. That Jesus grows his church and every good thing that happens in our midst is because of God himself working through his spirit in our midst. It's nothing good that we've done but solely the grace of God. No, I, never, I didn't build this church. The elders didn't build this church. The deacons, small group leaders didn't build this church. The volunteers didn't build this church. No, God built this church. And God gets all the glory. 
And so what that means for us as a church is that we praise God often. We praise God loudly that God has done a mighty work here at Redeemer in our midst. And we praise God for the other churches in our land that have Jesus as their head. And we praise God that he is moving with the gospel in and through them as well. Now, friends, we want gospel preaching churches everywhere, whether we've started them or not. We don't want our enemy or those that we're in competition with to be other Christians. No, the disciples here wanted exclusive rights to Jesus. But Jesus says in verse 40, very clearly, the one who is not against us is for us. The one who is not against us is for us. We notice in this passage that John never said that this man wasn't following Christ. He just said, this man isn't following us. Well, what does this mean for us as a church? Well, it means that we cheer on others proclaiming the gospel. That we're not the only ones out here. And so we pray for UCCD. We pray for Well of Life. We pray for the Net Church. We pray for the Arabic Evangelical Church, the Filipino Christian Church, the Telugu Malayalam-speaking churches, for Fellowship of the Emirates and the other churches in this land. We pray for them and we celebrate the truth when it comes from them. We celebrate when the gospel is brought out from them. Now, we might not agree with every little issue of philosophy of ministry. We might not even agree on every secondary area of doctrine. But if they are preaching the one true gospel of the one true God, then as a church, let's rejoice. Let's praise God for the work here in this land. You can see in a much worse situation in the book of Philippians, we see Paul in Philippians chapter 1. He's in prison, and it's brought to his attention that people are preaching the gospel out of envy and strife. And Paul stops and says, praise God, because the gospel is going out, even regardless of their motives. So friends, regardless of what's going on around us, if the true gospel is going out, let's rejoice, let's praise God that his kingdom is spreading, that the gospel is moving forth, and the true words about Jesus Christ crucified and rose from the dead is being spread in the UAE and beyond. Let's rejoice, let's praise God, let's praise God for this work. So friends, as you sit here, how are your feelings towards other churches this morning? How are your feelings towards other ministries in this land? How are your feelings towards other ministries in this church? Friends, if you're struggling with the ministry of other Christians or churches, you might ask yourself some of these questions. Is this ministry failing to proclaim the gospel or am I just jealous of their work? Do I want Christ's kingdom to advance, or do I want my kingdom to advance? Do I want Jesus to be honored, or do I want myself to be honored? Do I want ministry to grow in the UAE, or do I want people to recognize my ministry? And am I doing this for my glory or for God's glory. Friends, let's pray that revival would start in this land. 
And oh, let's pray that revival would start over at UCCD or at Fellowship of the Emirates or the Arabic Church. May revival start there. And may we pray that it would happen, that we could be a small part in that revival happening. Oh, we pray that God would do it through these other churches. Let's pray for that. Let's praise God when it does start with them. And let's cheer on other Christians in this land. May God use them to do astounding things for God's kingdom here on the Arabian Peninsula. And friends, let's repent of our envy of other believers. Let's pray that the Spirit would guard against such cancerous activity in the body of Christ, such as gossip or slander towards them. As Christians, how dare we slander other Christians who were purchased by the same blood of Christ as we are? May we speak well of them. May we pray for them. Remember, the way of the cross is to be humble. The way up is to go down. Let's cheer on other Christians proclaiming the gospel. Well, finally, the third and final lesson in our passage is a more sober one. It's a somber lesson that Jesus gives us. And it's that hell is serious. It's that hell is serious. Look at verses 42 through 50. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Talking about hell is never enjoyable. It's serious business and a somber reality. And it's a serious reality, so we don't want to be careless in this discussion because people's eternity is at stake. We always want to present this in a loving way. So we also need to remember, though, in presenting it in a loving way, that our Creator's sense of justice is perfect, that our God is sovereign, that He is all-powerful, and so in our emotions and aversion to hell, we can't make statements like, well, God would never do this. Or a loving God could never send anyone to hell. Now you see that when you do this, you're putting God's actions in submission to your human reasoning. You're saying God wouldn't do this because you wouldn't do it. Are you saying God wouldn't do this because you can't understand it? See, the reality is God does things that we just wouldn't do, or wouldn't think to do. God's ways are above our ways. God's wisdom is above human wisdom. We see this in the gospel, don't we? There's no way we would invent a gospel that would send the Son of God to die in our place for the forgiveness of sins. No man's way would try to be to figure out a way to get, make a stairway to heaven, that we could work our way to heaven by good works. No, God's ways are so far above our ways. 
And so as we come to passages like this one today, it should enter our minds that maybe God knows some things that we just don't know or don't understand. We never approach God's word saying, I hate this level of reasoning, so it must not be true. He would never do this. I think this is a temptation for all of us with difficult doctrine. And so today we want to get some clarity, just for a few minutes, on the topic of hell straight from the mouth of Jesus. I mean, there's no better source than to go to God in the flesh, the Son of God himself, here in this passage. And so I just want to list off really just four things, kind of four sub-points to this third point that hell is serious. Four sub-points. The first one is that hell is real. Hell is real. This might be stating the obvious, but there are those who try to change hell, those today who want to make it metaphorical or make it something that it's not. In fact, Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. He does it because it's a real place. And it's the place that he was concerned about getting people rescued from. And as we see in our passage today, hell is a real place. Well, secondly, hell is a terrible place. It's a terrible place. It's not simply the absence of good. It's not annihilation as if you could just disappear when you die and your spirit ends. No, hell is a place of eternal torment that will never, ever, ever end. Look at the images that Jesus uses in our passage. Verse 42, the punishment for sin is worse than being thrown into the sea with a large millstone around your neck. Verses 43, 45, 47, Jesus warns directly of hell, the place where God finally takes up the challenge of opposition. And we see that hell is everlasting. Verse 43, the fire never goes out. Verse 48, the fire is not quenched. Other places we see hell described as a place of darkness, punishment, restlessness, second death, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. No, friends, hell is a terrible place. It's a sobering reality. It's not a place where Satan will reign. It's not as if Satan's in charge of hell like it's portrayed in the movies where it'll be one big licentious, evil, wicked party. As if Satan is just reigning over his dark kingdom. No, hell is the place of punishment that God prepared for the devil and his fallen angels. And it's a place where those who reject him will drink of the wine of God's wrath forever. No, people who reject Jesus in this life will not rejoice with him after this life. No, hell is real. Hell is terrible. It is eternal. There's no possibility of amnesty or reprieve. That's because our sin is so grave, so huge that we have sinned against a perfect and holy God. And that brings us to really the third sub-point under hell is that our sin is serious. Our sin is serious. Jesus is telling us that in view of eternity, in view of heaven, and in view of hell, be careful of how you live today. Don't even get yourself in situations where you are tempted to sin. Now, how serious should we be regarding our sin? Well, Jesus gives us some examples. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eyes, cut them out. Well, these were well-known punishments in Jesus' day. If you were caught as a thief, you might get your hand cut off. If you were caught in lust or adultery, you might get your eye cut off. 
If you were a runaway slave, you might get your foot cut off. Now, the point Jesus is making is that all these punishments would be better than spending an eternity in hell. And yet I'm afraid that we just get too used to our sin. We just get too used to it. We get comfortable. Perhaps we don't even notice our sin anymore. Now, there's a close friend of mine who used to live in a city that had an incredibly bad smell. This whole city smelled like mayonnaise. It was disgusting. The front yard smelled like mayonnaise. Restaurants smelled like mayonnaise. The football field smelled like mayonnaise. Everywhere you went, it felt like you had a glob of mayonnaise right under your nose. It was so terrible. And every time I'd visit my friend Tony, I'd remark to him, Hey, brother, I don't know how you could live here. I could never live in this terrible place. And time and time again, I'd go back and back and back. And after being outside for just a few hours with my friend Tony, you know what happened each time? After a few hours, I didn't notice it anymore. I got used to it. It became normal, and it didn't bother me anymore. Now, I fear that for us, that's how we are with sin. We just get used to its stench. We get used to its smell, its repulsiveness. It becomes even endearing to us. We get numb to it. It's amazing how so often our human heart has the ability to adapt and to filter things out. Now, Jesus is telling his disciples here, and he's telling us, watch out. Your sin is serious. Look out. Even if you think it's just affecting part of you, watch out. Let's to consume your whole body. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine if a fire was taking place in your living room, and it was consuming just a pillow on a couch, and you were just to sit there across the room going, it's okay. The fire is just destroying the pillow. The rest of the house is okay. No, if you don't do something quickly in that situation, the whole house will get on fire. Fire is never satisfied. It can't be allowed to smolder. It can't be, can't be confined to a corner because it will eventually overtake all of you. And it's the same with sin. It'll overtake all of you. And that's why Jesus is saying here, cut off your hand Cut out your eyes. Cut off your foot. He's using these drastic images of amputation because he's saying, guys, if you don't do something drastic, your sin's going to take you down. Now, he's not teaching that physical maiming was to go on. Jesus is not telling them to literally cut out their hands or feet. This language is hyperbole. It's poetic. It's because amputation will never save anyone from their sins. So here's the good news that Redeemer, we're never going to get up here at the front and tell you to cut off your hand or cut off your foot. It's the good news this morning. And the reason we won't do that is because if you cut off your hand, you've still got another one. If you cut out your eyes, it won't matter because you still have your heart. It will never end. Jesus isn't talking about maiming. Disciples didn't go out and cut off their hands and feet. No, It was because the biggest problem of the disciples and the biggest problem of you and me is our heart. And sin is very deceptive in that way, isn't it? It's not hard for us to maybe even be sitting here this morning thinking that you're not really struggling with sin. For you to be sitting here not really concerned about your sin. When in reality, behind the scenes, you're treating your spouse poorly, you're ignoring your kids, you're struggling with lust or pride, maybe you're cheating at work, 
It's so deceptive that you can even be sitting here today thinking, eh, everything's okay. No, Jesus is telling us better to take drastic measures against our sin than to spend an eternity in hell. Our sin, unforgiven sin, separates us from God and keeps us from being reconciled to him. And furthermore, we see verse 42 that sin doesn't just affect us, but it affects others. Look at verse 42. It says, don't be a stumbling block. Don't cause others to sin. A large millstone was used for grinding grain. And being drowned by a millstone was especially filled with sorrow for the Jew because their corpse would sink and would be unable to be recovered for a proper burial. Jesus is saying, live your life in such a way as to be a blessing to those following Jesus, not as a temptation to them. Your sin is serious for your own life, and your sin is serious for the lives of those around you. Because, and here's the fourth point, your sin is serious because your eternity is at stake. It's the fourth point under the subtitle. Unforgiven sin will separate you from God for all eternity. Looking at this passage, there's something you should fear more than death. According to Jesus, it's what comes after death if you're not a believer. If you don't know Jesus, this passage is clear on what's at stake. That there are two ways to live, two different paths you can go that lead to two completely different places. There's nothing in between. There's no alternatives. On the one hand, there's eternity with Jesus in heaven. And on the other, there's eternal punishment and eternal justice and torment in hell. Friends, this first option is open to every single one of us this morning. In spite of the bad news that the Bible tells us. We see in the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis 3, That though all humans are made in the image of God, that Adam and Eve sinned, that they rebelled against God, they tried living their own life in their own way, and that every person born after them has committed sin, that we have all sinned, we have all rejected God, we have all wanted to place ourselves on the throne of our lives. We've rebelled against our Creator, and because God is good, and because God is just, He will have all of our sins punished and perfect justice executed. And as I said, there is good news. There is, in fact, great news for every single one of us who has come here this morning. That God has provided a way of escape for us. That he has provided a way for us to escape judgment. And he has, in fact, placed placed that judgment on another. Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. God in the flesh came and provided a way out for us. He suffered and died, and as Isaiah said, suffered and died not for his own sins, but for the sins of men. And then after dying on the cross, God raised him from the dead, showing that everything he said was true, and that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, the one come to save sinners from their sin. He came to provide a way to escape hell. The Bible says it's by believing in Jesus, it's by repenting of our sin and believing in Jesus, that there is no other way, that good works can't save us, that absence of those sins that we consider really bad, like adultery or like physically murdering someone, the absence of those sins doesn't save us. Church attendance and church membership doesn't save us as if church is a magic pill 
that you can take that punches your ticket to heaven. No, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3 that we must be born again. And that being born again comes from God's spirit. It's repenting of your sin and believing in Jesus that he is the giver of eternal life. Now, friends, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, I pray that this truth sinks to the bottom of your heart. I pray that even today you would trust in Jesus to save you. For this is the very reason Jesus came. Jesus came down so that we could go up. He became low so that we could go high. Now, friends, this is the greatest news that you could receive today. As we talk about the dread and the torment of hell, there is cause for rejoicing in Christ if you would believe. Don't let another day go by without believing in Jesus. And he promises he will save you. And if it is pride that's keeping you from recognizing your need, follow the example of Jesus. Lower yourself so that God can bring you up. If you're a Christian and you're here this morning, this is cause for great rejoicing. That you have been spared hell. You've been spared. As a Christian, the blood of the Lamb has been shed to cover your sins and you have been spared eternal torment and eternal punishing. Oh friend, rejoice that your life has been spared and that when you die, you will be ushered into God's presence with your maker and your creator. That the pain and suffering in this life is as bad as it's going to get for you. And that heaven will be wonderful because God will be there. That there will be no pain, no suffering, no difficulty, just everlasting joy. Now, friends, I pray that remembering this truth again for you today would be the fuel for your joy. I pray that it would fill your tank with joy for this upcoming week. That you would remember that you have been spared. And there is no greater news. There's no greater news on CNN today. There's no greater news that a friend can call you and give you today. There's no greater news than to be reminded that you have been spared death and that you will spend an eternity with God in heaven. Oh, friends, rejoice in this truth today. Go from this place with great joy. And go from this place contemplating the truths in this passage today as we've seen these three lessons in the school of discipleship according to Jesus. So I'm going to leave just by asking you, how's your heart this morning? Did any of these three lessons resonate with you? Is there anything in your life that you need to change as a result of God's word? Let God's word penetrate to the deepest part of our heart. Let our actions be indicative of what we learn today. And may God help us to not merely be hearers of the word, but doers of his word. Let us go to this great God now in prayer, asking for his help to do this. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice at the timeliness of your word. We know that your instruction here in Mark, in Mark 9 is perfectly timed for us as a congregation today. 
Father, thanks for encouraging us with these truths. And we ask now as we depart from this place that we would cling to the promises of the gospel, that you have spared us and you have loved us so well. Oh, Father, as we go forth from this place, would we humbly serve those around us, that we would rejoice at the ministry of those here in the UAE, that we would praise you for other churches. Father, use us to proclaim Christ in this lost world, that many more might be saved eternal torment, that they would join us in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will gather around you for all eternity, worshiping you face to face, our Creator, our Maker, our Lord and Savior. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.